I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With the rise of Trump, the Brexit, and the better-than-expected electoral showing of extremist political elements around the world and across the political spectrum, it's clear that there is much discontent with the modern political arena. Much of the discussion surrounding this discontent has been to touch on something that has not really been a part of the Western political discourse in quite some time, namely the very legitimacy of democratic institutions and governments. With talk of gerrymandering in the United States and concerns about the unresponsiveness of mainstream parties around the world, many have begun to suggest loudly that our institutions no longer can be relied on as legitimate representatives of the popular will. But conversations around this problem often devolve into empty rhetoric where all those involved have a different idea of what's being represented, how legitimacy happens, and what the word even means. Today we are going to address the issue of legitimacy squarely from a political science and philosophical perspective within the Westphalian state system. What is legitimacy and how is it procured? What happens when it's lost? How does this discussion relate to modern events? To arrive at answers to these questions and more, we will be relying on the expert knowledge of several of our esteemed Agora colleagues. I'll be your host today, and my name's Steve. We're joined by Eric from Reconsider Podcast, Brock Rademan and Pete Sleeman from the Lands of Leviathan Podcast, Benjamin Jacobs from the Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation Podcasts, And thank you guys for coming. Maybe we can take turns and introduce ourselves. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Morning, everyone, uh, and morning, listeners. My name is Eric Fogg. I am the co-host of the Reconsider podcast. Um, I have a bachelor's and master's in international relations from MIT, and I've been passionate about uh, understanding the state and the political system as it you know, as it works or doesn't work for mankind for a long time. Great. Uh, Brock, why don't you uh, tell us about yourself? Uh, If I have to, I am a dropout from life and I enjoy nothing but reading. And when I feel like speaking about something I think I know about when actually I know nothing, I phone up my mate Peter and we record it. (laughs) 
That's excellent. Uh, speaking of Peter, how are you? Good. Uh, it is uh, 12 o'clock at night here in uh, dark Australia. Uh, <laughs> so good evening um, or good morning if you, uh, if you want to be pedantic. Um, yeah, I'm a, a political scientist along with uh, Brock. I've got an undergrad in international relations and political science, honours in uh, political science and just finished my master's in uh, political and economic development. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, for those of you who've heard the Lands of Leviathan podcast, Brock and I enjoy having lots of fun with this, uh, with these type of topics. So we're super excited for this one. Peter's so far away from us in time zone, he's almost caught back up again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so far away from you guys. It's yesterday here. <laughs> and Benjamin. Yeah, I uh, I have a BA in international relations, uh, and I got my master's in urban planning. And I work in urban planning, which means I work for the state. And then my show, uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia, is about how basically states came to be in the early modern period of European history. All right, that's great. Let's get right into it. Pete, can you tell us a little bit, what is legitimacy? What do we mean when we talk about legitimacy? Uh, yeah, so... Legitimacy is a, a obviously it's an interesting concept uh, from a political point of view. Um, when we talk about legitimacy, we well, we what what I tend to refer to is uh, the transformation of power into authority. Um, so the perception of power as authority is a the process of legitimization, and that that hap- that obviously is a big part of of the state, but that happens at any political level. Um, as soon as human beings start uh, cooperating with each other um, and you know forming some kind of hierarchical power structure, you need to, at its most basic level, it's just the question that you hear in every uh, post-apocalyptic zombie movie. It's like, well, who put you in charge, man? Why should we listen to you? The, the, <laughs> process, <laughs> the process by which you get to the point where that question is no longer asked is the process of uh, legitimacy. So, you know, to provide a, a you know a good example of this and something that's uh, topical is the Trump, the Trump presidency. You know, that you might not like the Trump presidency. You you might not uh, agree with his policies, but if you, I mean, I'm sure there's con- there's people who would argue that it's his position is not legitimate. But given that the you know large scale American people buy into the system, they buy into the to the way that the system functions, his his position is legitimate in that form. It is given legitimacy by the people agreeing to him occupying that power, and and taking the, the power of the state. So, I think you know that's that, and and that can take many different forms. So you know, it, depending on how you you want to have your 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 system legitimized. So in ancient Rome, for instance, the uh, legitimacy of of political figures flowed from sometimes a religious background you know you know the emperors were almost sometimes godlike figures obviously the legitimacy of the senate as a political group was given to them by the people uh, you know the populus romani um, hey, hey stop doing my job for me that's my part <laughs> but yeah so that that's that's what we mean when we say political legitimacy is the the transformation of just I have the biggest stick and I therefore I take power to this guy should be in power because of the rules that that govern our society. Is that the next step from just a basic 
system of a political organization to something more like the Westphalian system, where it's not just the person with the biggest stick? Like, how does violence fit into all of that? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, as, as your societies get more and more complex, and obviously you have to take into account historical trajectories, you know, the Westphalian state system, and I'm sure Ben would have much more information on this, is a product of the Thirty Years' War and the Reformation and very specific historical context that were going on in Europe at the time. But violence is a way of, of, of gaining power. That's how you, I mean, that's, to a large extent for human history, that's how we've gained power. It's, it's the guy with the biggest stick. It's what you do after you've gained the power. And you can see, yeah. you know, if, if you do an analysis of any coup, um, it's, you know, it's how, it, it's how the, 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 when a coup is successful, you rebrand. You're no longer um, fighters, you, you know, you're no longer military. You, you try and transform yourself into political leadership. And you have to find a way to do that, and depending on your historical context. So another good example of this is like um, Ethiopia, where the, the way that uh, the current regime, the EPRDF in Ethiopia, legitimizes themselves in the eyes of the people is by attaching themselves to a pre-colonial period where they say, like, no, we are the legitimate rulers of this country, um, whereas the, the regime that they... Um, rebelled against the 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 Derg or Derg regime, which was a communist regime. You know, they they say no, it's, it, that was a communist regime, which is Western ideas that were you know brought in by foreign powers. So you can see that it's a it's almost I hate to use this analogy, but it's you know you're rebranding, you're marketing, you're selling the fact that we are the legitimate figures, and that works sometimes, and that doesn't. But I, I do think you know violence violence does come into it, and it has has been a big part of it for. Um, most for most of human history, you know, that's one of the things that is great about the American and uh, British and more stable systems is that, you know, as much as you want to complain about it, the fact that, you know, you've had a couple of hundred years of, uh, you know, tr uh, transfers of power with no violence from a human history point of view, that's pretty cool. That's pretty rare, actually, um, even in many parts of the world today. Here's where I see the relationship between power, violence, and legitimacy. Because if we think of violence as the way that the state exerts its power, and you don't have a state that's not exerting its power with violence. So that is, that is part of the definition of the state. Um, the way that violence fits into this is that when a state is legitimate, people consent to the state using violence on its own people or the threat of violence on its own people in order to exert its power. So for example, when you see a cop pulling someone over, right, and and that cop is going to, you know, use the threat of jail ultimately as a way to enforce certain behavior and say, you're not allowed to do this. I represent the state. We have power. And I can put you in jail if you don't do, you know, if you don't ultimately follow the law. Um, when a cop pulls someone's over and everyone else looks at the what's going on and says, ah, that guy probably broke the law and it's a good thing that the cop's pulling him over and he's going to get, you know, the, the cop is exerting order in a way that I want. I'm happy, right? I feel okay about this. That's when a state has legitimacy. But when an agent of the state be it a cop or someone else, 
is using violence or the threat of violence to enforce something and people around are saying this is bad either i got to keep my head down or i want to resist it or or you know i feel like something's wrong then the state is losing legitimacy in its ability and right in the minds of the people to exert its power using violence now that sounds like a very fine line brock maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the sources of legitimacy and sovereignty I, I'm going to try, uh, but I'm, I'm going to try by starting with an answer to your question, at least the way I understood the question, which was how does the evolution of the state encompass this complicated relationship between violence, power, and legitimacy? And just to go back to that, the, that, that term that easily sticks in the mind, which is the person with the biggest stick, as the state evolved... Um, it was forced to. It was both um, prompted to evolve and, in turn, allowed people to evolve the state itself by giving them more violence at, uh, in response to the person with the most power. So when we had a state that that was legitimized based on its monarch or based on a kingly or divine ruler, um, in other words, a state prior to the Westphalian state. Then you'd see that because God is because a declaration has been made that the king or queen has been selected by God to rule this people or this nation as a part of the state, um, they are conferred by by that decree or by that declaration to have legitimacy. Nobody needs to consent to that. The citizenship, whether you're a citizen or not, whether you're a member of the general population or not, whether you're a slave or a landowner, it doesn't matter. The decree stands above you and the legitimacy is conferred thereby. However, as the state grew older, it the 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 per, the, the king or the queen who in that in that sense had the biggest stick, they um they you know, they had the propensity to or could at least uh, it was possible for them to become tyrants, and we saw that you know as kings and queens agglomerated more land and became you know, formed empires, especially uh, throughout Europe. It, uh, tyrannical leadership was quite common, uh, and so, in a sense, with the with the French Revolution, at least that stands out most opaquely. Uh, we saw that the masses took on or conferred on themselves more violence and more power uh, as a means to match the biggest stick. So. The people started to challenge divine rulership and saw themselves in themselves as, as a citizen or as a what they call a frater or a, a frère or a brother or a, a, a comrade that they as people as individuals could have the power to confer legitimacy and so was born or at least at that point more the, the democratic state became stronger and became more popular became more popular as an idea and as an institution um, and slowly from there, outside of Britain, we can see also the, a, a Bill of Rights, or at least a, a, in a bigger scale, a constitution and constitutionalism forming uh, another means of conferring legitimacy or power, in that it balances out who's got sticks and how big they are, uh, and, who's, and, who's got the, and who has the, the ability to defend against violence, and who should be the ones conferring, or at least um, enacting violence. So constitutions were used throughout the world to not just agglomerate legitimacy from individuals and from people, members of the, of the population and citizens, but also to form a state. Um, in fact, it was the formation of the state that prompted the need for a constitution in many countries, uh, especially in Europe. 
So, uh, in addition to constitutionalism, there is uh, we we can look at other forms of legitimacy, like especially in the modern state, where we can consider the means of governance or the way a democratic state operates and how it fulfills its constitutional um, capacities and how it fulfills its constitutional mandate. Uh, what there there are a few theories that we could talk about here, but there only there's only two that I think are, are really neat to to bring up now, and that's the input and output uh, of legitimacy. So we're, we're very concerned as citizens of the modern world and inhabitants of, the, of a Westphalian state with what the state does with the power that we've given it uh, and how it uses the power that we've given it to not just serve us, but to keep itself functioning and not just functioning, but functioning well. So when we look at who participates in the process and what ideas and what lobbyists and which lobbying uh, powers are involved, all those functions and all those powers, all those actors form part of the input process. So some, some scholars would look at, at who's involved in the process and say because the right number of people are involved or because the right faces or the right names are involved or the right groups, the input processes have, in enough, have sufficient legitimacy uh, to continue and to be sustainable. On the output side, people, scholars are more concerned with what the state does with the power it's given. So they're not really concerned with who's involved in making policy or who's involved in distributing resources or who's involved with enacting state power or violence or the threat of violence, but rather what it does with it. So what kind of rules are we making? What kind of policies are we setting up? Who's benefiting from state resources? And, um, and are those benefits enough to sustain the system of legitimacy that's been that's been set up. As a final note, there's a neat little school that's, that sits right in between those two uh, schools of input and output legitimacy, and they, they're, it's called throughput legitimacy. They don't really care who's involved, they don't really care what comes out of the process, but as long as the process itself is deliberative, is uh, democratic, is inclusive, um, and is ultimately fair, then they say that's a, that's a system that is that is deemed legitimate and therefore should be upheld. Um, there, you know, there are a bunch of other sources as well that we could talk about, but uh, I'm a bit scared of running out of time. <laughs> I'd like to bring Ben in here. What would you add to that, and what would you, how do you say that that applies to a modern context? So, um, yeah, b basically, we're, we're talking about a couple interesting things here. Uh, on the one hand, from an academic standpoint, we we have the uh, the input output and throughput stuff that Brock was just talking about. Uh, and then we're also sort of talking about a, a philosophical process, which is kind of uh, almost mystical and <laughs> metaphysical in its nature, where we're talking about something that's legitimacy, which is this abstract concept uh, that comes from the state in the Westphalian state system and is transferred to governments. Uh, and governments themselves are kind of an amorphous, non-monolithic mass of stuff. Um, individuals, institutions, buildings, whatever. Um, and how that happens is, you know, everyone sort of has their own different idea. Uh, different, you know, academics and philosophers and poets and songwriters all sort of end up having a different crack at it. And even within things like the international institutions we've set up with their, their legal processes, there's not a really clear definition of, like, even, you know what a state is to a certain extent uh is the state 
all the people who live in the state, or is it uh, all the territory that's controlled by the state, and it's some sort of con combination of the two? Um, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about the different conceptions of how, you know, legitimacy is transferred from the state to the government for a little bit. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about what is a nation? It's Ben kind of set that up a little bit that it's a it's more than just a government and it's more than just a state. There's a lot of different things going on there. Can you comment towards that, especially when we talk about the social contract? Yeah, and I, I think what Ben said there is is really important. The uh, just to, to to put it back a, a little bit is the idea that it's the, the state is the from a philosophical and political science point of view, it's the state that has legitimacy, and the state always has legitimacy in the it or it it holds the power. The power is loaned to gov the whichever government happens to be in power at that time, and if they achieve that power through uh, democratic elections, which we like, or through uh, you know violent uprising, which we don't, but if it manages to seize the state power without destroying the state, then it it, it's, it tends to get a certain amount of legitimacy depending on how it gets there, and. You know, as you know, us academics, we like to have very strict definitions of what the state is. But uh, uh, you know, anybody, and I, I love it because I'm a political scientist much more than somebody who focuses on international relations. So whenever somebody says, you know, we don't have a definition of it, I'm like, yes, we do. It's a controlled group of people. It's a you know coercive monopoly of power, and you know, it's the five things. And in then everybody's like. Yeah, but what about this place? What about that place? What about, uh, you know, what about uh, Somaliland, which has all that, but nobody gives a shit about it? And um, and then I'm like, yeah, that that's that's true. You, you're absolutely right. So it's it's absolutely not as cut and dry as I, I, we'd like to say. But the the concept, especially the concept from a Western point of view, is the state as a nation state, which is. Uh, Actually, I, do, I wouldn't even say it's a Western point of view. I'd say it's a European point of view. It's the idea, and a nation is a group of people, usually a very large group of people, who share um, an, usually an ethnicity and share cultural norms and values. Um, now, you can have very small, strong nations, very diverse nations. So, for instance... Uh, one of the most recent states that was formed in human history is the, you know, is Israel, the Jewish state, which is a nation state based on, um, you know, the idea that all Jewish people share a common heritage and they share common norms and values, um, which, you know, is, might be contestable or might not. But that's that's what's the idea behind the formation of that state. Um, so... You know, Europe has a lot, has pretty good nation states or, you know, historically, you know, you've got the French in France and the Germans in Germany up and, you know, at least post uh, 1891. But, uh, you know, even that's contestable. Um, you know, how, how strongly linked are the um, northern Germans from people who uh, live in Munich and, you know, Bavarian area. But the idea is that you have a group of people that come together with enough shared identity to form a nation state, that they can be classed as a nation. Now, Brock and I come from an area where the nation state doesn't act doesn't exist at all um, in in Africa. Um, there is no nation state 
there there are there are states, but not but all of them comprise one or you know two or more nations. So, for instance, South Africa has uh, you know Zulus, uh, the Zulus who are very nationally orientated. They have a very strong national identity. We've got. Afrikaners who also have a crazy strong national identity, which resulted in bad stuff happening. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of other people, Venda, Satwati, uh, you know, and then when you go into the rest of African countries, it's, it's exactly the same thing. You can jump into Nigeria where you have people who base their identity on religion and that becomes a, that becomes a big issue. People have completely different historical, socio-historical contexts. So the, the nation state as such is a, it's like a two-part thing that is constructed to a certain extent. And that was one of the worst things that, you know, Europeans did when when the colonialism started in in Africa and and in Asia, was that they just forced this idea of the nation states without taking into account anybody's similarities. And what I find, uh, what I always find fascinating is looking at America. You know, I would, I would definitely say that America is not a nation state. Um, it's a huge state made up of many, many different types of people, and I, you know. You could say that people from one side of the country are as different from people in the other side of the country as they are from, you know, people in different countries. You know, that, that there might be more in, in historical and social relations between in common between Canadians and people from New England and Boston than there ever will be between, you know, Canadi- uh, you know people from New England and Boston and people from Louisiana, for instance. Um, so... I think that the nation state is fraught with a huge amount of difficulty, but to bring it back to a, a uh, an idea of legitimacy, when you have a when you have a nation and you you get that nation to to form a state, one of the things that makes it so much easier to have the legitimacy of a state is a strong sense of national identity. You know, we are us and they are them. It, it, and from a philosophical point of view, um, you know, this goes into a whole lot of like Foucaultian power dynamics where, you know, what, what we call the otherism. You know, it's very easy to define yourself against somebody else. And when you have a nation state, it just it, cre- it creates a sense of strength and purpose and I think a sense of legitimacy. It allows the state to, to form around a much stronger pivot. And, you know, I think that that was, um, there was a strong impetus in like the early days of, of America. I mean, even probably to this day, for instance, uh, the, you know, children saying their Pledge of Allegiance in the morning um, to try and create a sense of like, we are Americans. And even though there might be huge differences. Um, and I think that that's where that idea of the nation state and nations come into play with for- the formation of authority and legitimacy within a state. I have a question that um, maybe Ben can tackle, but we can draw some other people in, especially I'd like to hear what Eric has to say to this because it'll lead into more about um, recognition of the state. You use terms like nation and state. How does that, are those two terms, they get often mashed together into nation, state, but do they have specific meanings in and of themselves? And how does that relate to a, a specific people. Yeah, I would say that um, 
we're, we're splitting some some terminological hairs here, but this is all sort of a, a metaphysical exercise, uh, <laughs> like I, I talked about before. So the the state is the the exercise of power, uh, from in sort of a uh, a platonic sense, uh, and the nation is what creates the state to a certain extent in the the Westphalian conception of things. Uh, and what the nation is, is, as Peter just suggested, it was sort of this combination of uh, people who live roughly in a place, who share a culture and, and different values. Um, and so you can sort of say that the state derives from the nation, and then the government derives legitimacy from the state uh, to, to, to some extent. This is all very <laughs> platonic. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that uh, be, because this is also metaphysical and confusing, um, there, there's a lot of discussion that ends up revolving around. Well, well, what does the what is the state and what does it represent? Is it you know um, when the nation part of the nation state was heavily emphasized up until 1945 for some reason? Um, the thing that people focused on heavily was all the people who considered themselves part of that nation or who someone else considered part of that nation. So, for example, just pulling an example out of the hat, all the German speakers might want to be part of a German nation, um, or maybe they should be part of a German nation, uh, whether they want to or not, and that would be regardless of where they happen to live at a specific time. Whereas modern concepts of the state, um, the, the nation part of it is often still there, but we spend a lot more time concerning ourselves with things like borders and geographic locations. Um, and so that's another aspect of, of this nation-state concept. The nation-state is very much this compound conception of the population, the people, and the place and the borders. Uh, and in the modern Westphalian conception of the state system, um, the the government has to represent both the people that they are representing and they have to govern the place that they have control over uh if if that makes sense <laughs> eric i was thinking that maybe when you talk about a little bit about the recognition of the state there is this connection between geography and identity basically of people where people can live a stone's throw away from each other and otherwise would identify as the same people, same language, same culture, but they're in different nation states. Is there, in the Westphalian system, is there no fluidity to that? If you're in an, a, is geographical boundaries more important than identity of people? <clears throat> yeah, my understanding is that Geography in the modern state system is paramount. So, uh, I mean, we can look back to World War II, and one of the major points of tension there was that, well, there were many points of tension, but one of the major professed points of tension was that there were German people living in Austria and parts of Czechoslovakia that were not part of Germany. And so much of the early role from, uh, from the German state was to amalgamate those people into their state. Um, it is the case these days that, you know, for example, if you're 
someone of Mexican heritage living in the southwestern United States, you're an American, not a Mexican, um, sort of regardless of how you feel about it. And one of the ways that that is enforced is through um, the shared agreement between the leadership of different states to run things that way. That, look, there's a there's a line here in the sand. Um, we probably didn't even paint it, but it's there. And if you're on this side of the line, you're in such and such a country. And if you want to live here, you're going to live by these rules. Um, and if you don't want to live by these rules, you're going to immigrate. And that can create, obviously, a lot of tension. Um, a lot of wars that we've seen throughout the 19th and 20th century um, that were not colonial in nature were, uh, well, even in the 21st century, um, a lot of these wars were due to the fact that the geographical lines of different states didn't particularly well line up with the geographical lines of different people that identified as a group. So if we look at the Middle East, um, it's generally agreed that one of the major issues going on is that you have, you know, um, Arab, Sunnis, and Shiites, and you have Kurds, um, and you have all these different ethno-sectarian groups who have been somewhat arbitrary, well, quite arbitrarily mashed together after the end of World War I into these states. Now, because it works pretty well in the Western system, there's this sense that we're going to continue enforcing that. And it's really hard to enforce rule, um, or to enforce, you know, which state gets to rule over an area by any means other than geography, right? You can't have their jurisdiction moving around as different people tend to move. Um, but where those lines don't mesh up really well with people's sense of their nation, um, and if you think of it from an evolutionary perspective, you can almost think of it as a tribal sense, right? Like, my nation is people that are ethnically like me or religiously like me. Um, where those lines don't line up, you have tension. But it has been the case uh, into the 21st century that we're going to continue with this borders rule. They are the first and only definition of the state. Um, and the only way that we've tried to deal with the fact that certain lines don't work so well is by having a joint agreement as an international community that we're going to change some of these lines. So the creation of Kosovo is a good example where there are these Albanian Kosovars who wanted nothing to do with Serbia. You know, there was a war in the 1990s. It was pretty ugly. And we finally, they've been advocating for having their own little spot. And the United Nations said, okay, you can have your own spot. This is going to create greater stability. And because of people's sense that they want to be ruled by and they want to devote their collective resources to people who are ethnically and religiously like them, um, this has worked out better. It's created a sense of, of greater peace in the area than would have happened. And right now with the wars in the Middle East, people are looking to, you know, people have been starting to consider for the past 10 years thinking about allowing the lines to be withdrawn. So, you know, the state of Kurdistan being one of the experiments people are considering trying out because it doesn't seem to be working so well um, in certain parts of the world having these different ethno-sectarian groups smashed together. One of the other things with recognition, though, is that uh, it's also an internal process. Uh, it's not just in terms of the other states recognizing you in terms of the geography. Uh, it's also the, the population recognizing the legitimacy of the government. At the end of the day, 
a sufficient amount of consent of the people governed is the practical basis for legitimacy, right? So for example, a leader can say, I am appointed by God. But if enough people say, uh, bollocks to that, you're not our leader and we're going to resist and we're not, or at least we're not going to consent and participate, then the legitimacy for that leader starts to fall apart. And so when we talk about sources of legitimacy, you know, I know we talked earlier about branding and marketing. It's very important um, that we see it from this perspective, because at the end of the day, it sort of doesn't matter what piece of paper or what historical precedent or what story or narrative or God is the basis of your claim to legitimacy. What matters in a functioning state is whether your claim to legitimacy is recognized by enough people such that, you know, if you think of a bell curve of amount of recognition and consent internally, you know, the people at one end of the bell curve, there are enough of those that are actively participating in helping the state uh, stick together and function. And then there's enough of this bulk in the middle that are just willing to consent and more or less do what they're told and just go about their daily lives. And there are few enough people that are trying to undo the system because they don't see it as legitimate. Um, as long as those numbers work out right, you have a sufficient level of legitimacy. And as we can see, it's not binary, right? You're not either legitimate or not. You have a certain amount. Um, but you have enough legitimacy for the state to be able to function somewhat healthily. Um, and you need to find the branding if you're trying to run a state that works for you to be able to get um, that level of legitimacy to, to keep governing. So just to sort of summarize all this a little bit. Um, so there's this dual character where we have people in place and internally we like to think of and we like to talk about, you know, the people need to provide legitimacy to the state, but then externally, the external international Westphalian state system community needs to recognize those borders as the correct borders. And so there's this dual character that is a tension that ends up affecting things like, for example, the United States Constitution, where there's this tension between popular will in terms of, you know, one man, one vote, and then um, having to have the government represent and govern very geographically diverse uh, pieces of territory and not wanting people in Wyoming to be utterly electorally run over by people from California, for example. So, uh, yeah. Now, Brock, you had mentioned, and I think this ties into well with what Ben just said about such as South Africa, where there's different groupings inside of there that are kind of states in and of themselves, or in Kurdistan, where it's almost a state within a state, and then in a place like the United States where each individual state, I mean, they're called states, have a certain amount of sovereignty that's outside of the main state. How does that all fit together into what we've been talking about today? It's, it, 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 it fits together with great difficulty and with, uh, to borrow the term you used in an earlier question, with a great amount of fluidity that uh, there's not just fluidity, and this is my personal opinion, around the geographical borders that encompass a population of people, but also around the identities of those people. If you had to go and spend your holiday in Luxembourg, 
you'd find yourself confused as to which language to speak. And that's just, that's not just you as a tourist, but if you were from Luxembourg, you'd still probably find a certain amount of confusion since their country is located right in between France and Germany. And that's not to say that they would rather split the country in two and have the people who prefer to speak French join the, the, the nation of France uh, and the same with Germany, but rather that they are comfortable with the amount of fluidity and they've accepted and consented to an identity or to a national identity that straddles both languages and cultures. Now, that can be drawn over to a certain extent to, to, to state legitimacy, to political legitimacy as well, in, in saying that while we would prefer as a, a Kurdish people or as a Kosovar to set up political institutions and civil institutions that govern us according to, to not just by people who share a cultural identity, but also according to a set of rules and norms, which is closely aligned with our political identity. We would also want anybody who is prepared to consent to our political state uh, to feel a part of that state. So if I live in Kurdistan or Kosovo and I'm looking to build a new state, based on the principles of legitimacy uh, in both civil and uh, cultural terms, then I'd want anybody who, ab who abides by those civil and cultural terms to feel a part of this nation. Uh, so, but to include that is very difficult because um, while you're trying to be fluid, you've also got to abide by this one, one person, one vote story, which, which, is, which is also required to uh, to facilitate a certain level of pragmatism. How can we all agree, how can we say that every single individual agrees to this system or agrees to that set of norms or agrees to this uh, to this leader when we know that it's it's almost you never you're almost never going to reach an absolute um, an outright sorry a, a full con a, a consent of all of all people. You're going to have dissent, you're going to have debate, you're going to have perhaps even confusion. And so you need some almost arbitrary or at least practical level to say, this is the number of people, this is the number, of, this is the amount of support, this is how we can quantify the legitimacy to an extent where we have, we have to settle on it, that we can agree and we can set these rules, these institutions or these leaders in place so that we can grow and then we can function and we can evolve. Um, so so unfortunately, I'm not giving much of an answer here to you, Steve, but uh, suffice it to say that the fluidity that we see in cultural identity and that we see flow over into national identities can also be seen to be pushed back against by the need to have a one-person, one-vote uh, level of pragmatism that binds people, that is, that forces people to bind together um, and, and into, uh, into groups of majorities and groups of minorities. Uh, and somehow we're making it work throughout the world. It should be said, though, um, that you can base your legitimacy on, quote unquote, the people and still not have a, uh, a one person, one vote system. So, for example, and this gets into the, the issue of ideology uh, that, you know, we've been talking sort of a lot about democracies and, you know, for a good portion of the world, the democratic principles uh, are one of the main sources of legitimacy, but there are alternative ideologies that can be used to con convey legitimacy onto a government. So, for example, the government of 
China. Um, the whatever democratic institutions exist are somewhat iffy in their, you know, realism, but they have, they still base their governing ideology that they represent the people of China. And, you know, they're legitimate so long as they're properly representing the interests of the people of China. So that's another way of conceptualizing this. I I think just, sorry, if I can just jump in there as well, there's a, there's a strong feeling in Western, I think Western political science and, and Western politics. Um, and yeah, that the democracy means legitimacy. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. Like you can have a totalitarian authoritarian government um, that can be relatively brutal on its people that still maintains legitimacy. Um, I think it would be a very difficult argument to make, uh, you, you know, f- I don't know, uh, for instance, that uh, the current Chinese regime, yeah, I mean, it's probably, it's got its agitators, but I, I wouldn't say that it lacks legitimacy, um, you know, in, in the term of the, the political will of allow, of the citizens allowing themselves to be ruled by that government, and in that, in the Chinese situation, with the state and government being essentially one and the same. Um, whereas compare that to Russia, for instance, where, again, obviously it's difficult to get perfect information, but where the information that is available shows a much m- more lacking um, legitimacy. You know, and as, as was said earlier, that, you know, legitima- legitimacy is not a zero-sum game. You don't either have it or don't. You have a certain percentage of it. I would say that, like, Vladimir Putin's government rules with a very strong authoritarian streak, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would say that it has a lot less legitimacy in the view of the people than, um, than, than the, than the Chinese government does. Um, and, you know, it, it, for however long that, um, that can last is, you know, up to history. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to note, especially for, for many listeners, is it like to just start pondering that question, well, do you have to be democratic to be to, to be a legitimate state? No, it makes life easier. It makes, it makes the transition of power much easier. And I, you know, I think that most political scientists and international relations um, thinkers and most philosophers would say, look, dem- you know, democracy is still probably one of the best systems in order to to provide that legitimacy but it's 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 a contingent it's not necessary to the creation of legitimacy yeah i'd say that the thing that democracy does is because there's elections there's at least some way to sort of gauge how people are feeling about the legitimacy of a given government uh whereas with authoritarian regimes you know they can have legitimacy like china but then they can lose legitimacy like like Russia, and you won't necessarily know that it's happening until problems happen. Yeah, you don't know until the coup starts. Absolutely, I yeah, I I, I agree. Until you have violent uprising, um, yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, yeah, but that's another problem with legitimacy in the way that we're talking about it. Is um, I don't know if we have enough time to get into it, but there's there's a need to acknowledge that that there are two layers of legitimacy, um, and that's we we've kind of. I think we've we, we've dealt with it um, quite deeply in the sense that legitimacy for the system or for the state, but there are but there's also legitimacy of a ruling party, and of course this is limited to to party um, or or democratic countries or party-run states, multi-party states, 
where, or even in one party, majority party states, where many people feel oppressed by a particular party, or where they don't see that the the means, the dem, the typical or traditional democratic means of evicting or replacing a party, other than by de, by removing or retaining their consent uh, in more violent forms. So there are violent uprisings. There are popular protests. There's uh, you know, people trying to express their their voice in, in very in very violent ways, uh, and that can be one in a democratic way trying to evict a party. But also, we need to be aware that legitimacy also for the state could be removed that way. Because um, I find often in, in in democratic dialogue, we f- we talk about how parties can change and how we want uh, new policies to be written, or so some rules need to change within the constitution that exists. But some people, uh, or some groups of people, might find that the constitution shouldn't exist, or that a democratic state is not the best way to organize a group of people. Um, so they are. So it's not just about you know the uh, revolting or. or um, rising up against the ruling party, but also rising up against the democratic means of conducting political affairs. So, uh, so there, there, there are many different layers of consent that can be expressed in the political system, uh, and it, it's um, uh, you know it's it's not always uh, cut and dry. People think that because we're seeing revolts now that it's because they want a different party, but actually people uh, are revolting because they don't want that particular regime in place. And that can come out in, in popular culture a lot more than it does in, in real life. So there really is a line between people protesting because they are upset about policy X, Y, and Z and protesting because they fundamentally don't think that the system is legitimate. Right. Absolutely. And we actually, you know, uh, there's sort of a, an issue that we don't necessarily have a term for that because a lot of times the term government is used to describe the party that's in power, particularly in parliamentary regimes. But, you know, the government is also all the political institutions, constitutions, laws, etc. that make up the governing apparatus as well. And it's, there's so many, like, I find this, there's actually, there's a lot of humor to be found in, the, in these type of things as well. You know, one example jumps out to me is uh, in South Africa, after the fall of apartheid and the establishment, and, you know, the ANC was elected in 94, the the, the last remnants of the, um, you know, the, the apartheid, the, you know, the real staunch Afrikaners who really still wanted to maintain a true nationalist Afrikaner state, um, they they reformed themselves and called themselves the Burmacht, who you know, eventually, you know, they were a semi-terrorist organization who'd never really got anything done that well. But they few they they one hundred percent refused to acknowledge uh, the legitimacy of the new South African state. Now, at the same time, there were massive protests going on all over South Africa against. You know, you name it. There was there was union strikes. There was you know there were people on the right who were who were very upset with the very liberal slant of the new constitution. There was a whole bunch of stuff going on. But if you'd gone to any of those people and said, "Okay, cool. So you're upset. Do you want us to just you know just dismantle the state that we've constructed and kind of you know do do, do you want to just destroy this?" They'll be like, "No, no, 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 no. We don't want to destroy the state. We just want it to be different." Um, <laughs> But you know, then you had these Afrikaners on the other side, and I, you know, these ter- the very far right wing 
almost Nazi-esque Afrikaners who were just like, no, we absolutely do not re- recognize the legitimacy of the state. And so um, we are going to try and bomb everybody. And I, th- I think, uh, Brock, you might know more about it, but they, they attempted to to get some bombs into the parliament building and their, I think their cars got stolen um, and they never got it off the ground. <laughs> and then eventually they just all got arrested for tax fraud. So, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it, uh-huh. it, there's an example, you know, it's a, it provides an example of this. There are these, and I think it would be good for us as, uh, you know, academics to have the different terms of protest, you know, state, state protest and, um, you know, intrastate protest or interstate, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but it would be interesting yeah. to see. We call, we call them first world problems when people are having a peaceful march, a peaceful march outside parliament because they want to change in party. That's a first world problem. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about how states gain legitimacy, but now let's focus in more on how states lose legitimacy. Eric, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how maybe an academic uh, would look at how state loses legitimacy. So let's start with what things look like when we know they've lost legitimacy, right? There are two ways that happens. One of them is external, one of them is internal. So we know a state has lost legitimacy externally when the international community has decided to team up and say, we're getting rid of this guy, right? So, I mean, uh, classically, Nazi Germany, right? It kind of didn't matter what Hitler's popularity rating was inside Germany or the German Empire at that point. They had lost their legitimacy because they'd broken the rules of the international system way too much. Um, and Sorry, and that's putting it that's putting it horribly lightly, but if we're... Thinking from a purely academic perspective, they've broken the rules too much. So at that point, enough states decide to gang up on and use their resources and and send their sons to die uh, to dismantle this state, right? So you can lose legitimacy by breaking enough of the rules of the international order that other states decide to take you down. The other way that you've found that you've lost legitimacy is your people are deciding to act and risk themselves to dismantle the state. Again, this is different from simply a party losing legitimacy or a leader. Like if we think of Park in South Korea, she lost legitimacy as a leader by uh, being corrupt and probably a puppet. Um, and, And at that point, you know, she was out, but the South Korean people wanted to keep the state and the system of governance that they have. So you lose legitimacy internally when enough people have decided that the state is not legitimate and they start acting in a way to undermine the state and try to replace it. Um, And there are a lot of different ways that this can happen, but ultimately it occurs in the minds of individuals and then groups um, that, you know, a line has been crossed and they're going to act. Um, and how you lose legitimacy depends on what is your professed source of legitimacy, right? So if your source of legitimacy is God, um, you can lose it when you've acted in a way so that, it, that breaks the rules of the religion. Um, if it's legalistic, like a constitution, you lose legitimacy when you act in ways that violate the constitution, Um Etc. And so in these cases, what we can see is that, you know, everyone bases their source of legitimacy on these different pillars. And you can break some of the rules 
right? And kind of get away with it. I mean, we've seen the United States government do unconstitutional things all the time. Um, and we've seen, you know, religious theocratic governments do stuff that doesn't necessarily seem to line up with the popular reading of that text. Um, but once you have crossed enough lines far enough and you've convinced enough people that it's time to go, then your legitimacy is lost and you're in a lot of trouble. I have a question for um, Ben. Maybe you can comment on this. It seems that it's very easy to see when a state has lost its legitimacy in hindsight, but is it even possible to see it when it's actually happening? Is that something that's observable? These days, you know, we're, we're getting into an era of scientific polling and, and all this stuff. There's ways to start doing measurements because, uh, like Eric said, the way you lose legitimacy is you lose it in the minds of individuals. Um, it, it's interesting. We, we have this land-based and people-based uh, version of legitimacy where you, you have to control the borders and you have to also convince the people within those borders but you can never make the land itself angry uh so it's, it's always going to be in the minds of individuals uh and so you, you can send people out and ask people how they're feeling and there's a lot of people who make a lot of money figuring out how to generalize samples of the population and how they feel out to the, the whole population and sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're right um so you can never be a hundred percent but in in the modern context with communications being so good and scientific polling getting there um we can start to look at you know we just go at ask people and like how do you feel about the state right now and they can give you an answer um and, but there's there's also other like canaries and coal mines like um people just stop paying taxes or uh increasingly ignore the law things things along those lines there's there's always things you can point to at, at least in retrospect that are adrift towards state failure uh, or governmental failure. But um, to a certain extent, though, you, you never know when some what's going to happen except in retrospect. Um, but there, there are warning signs, I suppose. Can, can I add something to that? Is um, Sorry, I, I just found the, the question so useful to try and figure out whether this stuff is noticeable from before, uh, from before the fact. So to try and preempt some of it or at least observe it while it's happening as opposed to after it has happened um, and it depends a lot on the on the source of legitimacy if we go back to um, like it has already been mentioned the, whether it's a religious source of legitimacy um, or it's a legalistic one or with you know ultimately res res resides in the minds of people um, but as soon as the the system exists once that legitimacy has been placed it has been placed according you know, from a certain place it has come from somewhere. Uh, and when, when it was placed, when it was transferred through these metaphysical avenues of state and onto the government, it, it was placed for a reason. It was given for a purpose. Uh, and when those purposes fall through, or when the rules or the, when the reasons that it was placed upon the government are, are no longer satisfied, it then becomes quite, quite easy to notice how legitimacy is being lost. For example, if if you if if faith was if legitimacy was placed in a in a state because of the institutions it has set up, um, take a, a state that is like 
the new state of South Africa in 1994, the, the, going back to the example that Peter used, when it, when the constitution was written up, it, a lot of emphasis was, a lot of attention was given to the, the institutions that were being created. Uh, and these institutions, such as uh, the powers that were separated in the executive, the multi-party system, the provincial and local governments, um, the constitution itself, the all the different courts that exist in the country, these these institutions all added legitimacy and gave people an opportunity to confer the legitimacy upon the state because they had re- they now had reason to believe that there was significant effort being made. When those institutions start to fall apart, when they no longer stand separated, when they no longer act like courts and behave more uh, captured bodies of rulership, then people begin to remove their legitimacy from the state because they had sort of been to, to again to use Peter's terminology of the marketing branding, uh, if if they had branded themselves, if South Africa had branded itself as institutional democracy, um, as and one of the reasons why they should be believed in as democracy, then when those institutions fall apart, guess what? People are going to start with their first world problems and demonstrating peacefully outside Parliament. So when those when those um, demonstrations are taking place at that point. We, we, we can't say legitimacy has been rightly removed because I wouldn't say you know, anybody's burning the, the courts just yet, but uh, but there's a strong need for and an urgent need for, for reformation of the institutions that were, that were set up in that case. Um, so depending on where where the, where the legitimacy came from and what was the source, what was the avenue of that legitimacy, that if that starts to erode, then, uh, then we can start to notice pretty quickly um, a rescinding of legitimacy. The other thing I would point out here is that um, there's sort of, uh, there's a lot of ways, but there's, let's say there's two ways that legitimacy can be lost um, in this conception. The government can start violating its, you know, duties to the original version of legitimacy, be that it's violating the the mandates of God or it's violating the constitution or whatever. Um, The other thing that can happen, though, is that the cultural expectations of that government can change from what's been agreed to. Um, and I think an interesting example of that right now is actually in the United States uh, in terms of the uh, the Electoral College, where, you know, the elector, the uh, original founders of the Constitution had a certain expectation that was not necessarily democratic, uh, that was very much based on trying to balance democracy against a sort of, you know, philosopher king, philosopher aristocracy kind of thing. Um, but 200 years on we in the united states have had you know you know decades of having our our elections reflect the popular will and having we've developed this expectation which is not reflected in our constitution that our votes are all equivalent across the board and now that we've gotten to this point of um partisan strife where we're really pushing up against the bounds of uh of consensus really in our political system all of a sudden people are realizing that the con- constitution no longer actually reflects what they expect it to reflect uh, the culture has drifted um and that's another way that legitimacy can be lost uh in this in the situation i think that leads very well into the next thing we're going to talk about is the social contract uh, Pete, can you maybe and try to briefly explain a little bit what the social contract is, and then we can tie that into how that fits into legitimacy and illegitimacy. 
Sure. Uh, yeah. The social contract is interesting. I, I mean, it's an interesting concept and it's one that comes up a lot, but it's also one that to a certain extent has been uh, theoretically debunked um, and philosophically debunked, but it, it still remains relevant because it, it's, it's, you know, it's almost like Marx. It creates a really good way of um, explaining what's happening. But uh, So the social contract is essentially the agreement that is reached between the citizens and the state at the moment of the state's formation. And although it doesn't actually have to be with the state, it, it's the agreement between whoever's ruling you and the ruled, basically. Um, and as a philosophical concept, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, you know, it was developed by um, people like Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke, who are considered the, you know, the, the original um, social contract theorists. And, it, you know, the social contract theory had a huge impact on things like drafting of the American Constitution. And it's essentially that prior to the existence of political institutions in society, which never actually, which as a historical point, never actually happened. You know, human beings are a political animal, as Aristotle said. Uh, we, we will always have some kind of political engagement with each other. But if you could imagine a time when, there, when that wasn't the case, human beings would be in a constant state of war. Um, war of every man against every man. And, or women, because oh, Thomas Hobbes was sexist. <laughs> and um, so... And then in that case, life is uh, uh, brief, solitary, nasty, brutus, and short. And um, what you do in that situation is you're like, right, well, I can't handle my this constant conflict with everybody because um, it's just shit and I'm, everybody's dying. So what we're going to do is we're going to get together and form a, an agreement whereby we will hand over some of our God-given or natural rights to uh, or natural ability to make war and violence against one another. And we will hand it over. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Over to a central authority. Uh, what um, Thomas Hobbes called the sovereign, and the in in res, in the sovereign will now have the only ability to act violently in certain si- situations, and in res, in re, you know in in response, the sovereign will protect us from said violence. So I don't have to worry about um, the you know the violence of my neighbor because the sovereign will protect me from my neighbor, and that way we can all kind of get on with our lives, and the. From a social contract theory point of view, the breakdown in legitimacy is when the social contract gets breached. So in the, the most basic terms, your neighbor comes around and kills, beats the shit out of you and steals all your stuff. And you know you have recourse to the sovereign because that was the agreement. So you go to the sovereign and you're like, right, my neighbor stole my stuff. But the, you know, the neighbor and the sovereign are good friends and the sovereign's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It's fine. Everything's fine. We're just going to ignore it. That's a breach of the social contract. So at that point, you can say, well, okay, you've breached the social contract. I hereby revoke your uh, ability to have my, um, you know, my violent uh, power. I'm taking it back. And then I can act violently. I am then legitimately allowed to act violently towards you. Um, and this is where the social contract theorists really start to get into disagreement because Hobbes had lived through a very nasty time in British history with um, revolutions and a large amount of war. And he he strongly believed that even a corrupt sovereign was better than having no sovereign at all. Um, that it, it's better to be ruled, um, it's better to have some rule than no rules at all because it, when you just let people get down to it they are just chaos so he wasn't very very um strong on the idea of you know armed revolution or revolution against the state or the sovereign whereas john locke um was very much in favor once the social contract has been broken then the the um the 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 people must rebel against the sovereign and what this means in today's terms, it's interesting because one of the one of the biggest problems with the social contract is that it's not actually a contract at all because the idea of a contract donates some kind of opt-in um, ability, which we don't have. We don't have the option to opt-in to the social contract when it's assumed that when we're born, we immediately sign the social contract, which is which means it's we didn't voluntarily agree to this. So that's that's the one big problem with it. The other one is the issue that um, a number of philosophers have brought up, which is a problem with mutual obligation. Um, you know, because I didn't necessarily agree to this, but because I benefit from the social contract, am I then given my tacit response to that social contract? Can we say that tacit response even exists? Um, at, you know, tacit approval even exists. So there's a, there's a bunch of philosophical problems with it. But today I would say, you know, it's it's very complex when we start to get into what is the social contract. So let's, again, ta- let's take America, for example. And, you know, what, what do we say that the American government's role is? 
is it the you know it's the protection of the people let's take that as an example has it just has it justified that mandate um if not can we rebel against that is that necessarily a violation of the social contract and is that social contract signed between us and the government or is it signed between us and the state now my view is that it's signed between us and the state not necessarily the government which reaches us to a certain point where if the government is breaching the social contract, that doesn't necessarily mean that the social contract is now void. It just means that one party has breached the terms of the contract, which now requires some form of arbitration, which is you know why we have the court systems. Of course, now if the court system is corrupt as well, well, then we have an even bigger problem because now we have no recourse for arbitration. So what do we do then? Well, that, at that point, we could maybe argue, okay, the 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 institutions of the state have become so heavily corrupted that the state itself is now illegitimate. But we've had situations in history, many, in recent history, where a government has acted against the interests of the people. The people have taken that government to court and, and won against that government. So I, I think a good example of this was in South Africa where – um, the government of Thabo Mbeki was refusing to um, give access to antiretroviral drugs, uh, which is a treatment for HIV/AIDS. And the treatment action campaign took Thabo Mbeki's government to court and won. Now, in that situation, what that shows is the state was not illegitimate. The the breach of the social contract by Thabo Mbeki's government, which was his the, the government's agreement to protect us from diseases and things like that which it's it's evolved into those the, the the social contract is still valid but the government breached it we took the government to court and we won which is great you know congratulations democracy works um but in you know you could imagine if the courts got paid off by Tabo and Becky then we would start to go down this this the very terrible path of state delegitimacy and the contract breaks down the social contract, if you look at it from a, I guess you could say like a legalistic uh, framework, there's five considerations for a contract in the English Commonwealth system. And the social contract really doesn't meet any of those, any of those qualifications. Eric, do you think that that matters? Do you even, are you, and how do you feel on the social contract? That's a great question. Uh whether it matters depends on your perspective. Uh, the pers- the question being, is it a like morally legitimate way of viewing your relationship with your government? Or for practical purposes, does it uh, does it create a sense of legitimacy in people? I think from the latter perspective, it's good enough despite the fact that it doesn't meet the qualifications of being a contract because most people happen to consent to it anyway when as long as it's working, right? If people are getting what they need um, or feel like they're getting what they need, feel like they're getting what is just um, for them. And this does change all the time, right? You think of the 1700s, like nobody was talking about the government providing health care. That would be absurd, and now there's this sense that it is absurd that the government would not provide health care in many countries. Um, and so as long as people feel like they are 
getting what they need as far as their physical needs, as far as justice, um, and as far probably as, as liberty and, and privacy, um, then they do feel like there is a contractual agreement um, that that they will behave, right? They'll say like, look, this government is giving me what I need. I'm not going to mess with it. Now, you could look at that from a purely selfish perspective and say, look, it's not that I feel this obligation to the state in the sense of a contract where I buy something and I give something in return, but that I'm going to support the state because it's good enough for me. And I kind of understand well enough that, you know, if I'm contributing to messing with the state, you know, either by being a thief or by being a cheat of some sort or, you know, doing stuff that gets me even more advantage, um, then I'm contributing to its downfall and that's a bad thing. Or, um, people are just thinking that the state has created consequences to, um, to enforce your end of the bargain and they just don't want to be thrown in jail. Um, and so to some extent from a, from a purely practical perspective, it kind of doesn't matter because the state has, um, enforcement mechanisms. And as long as people are getting what they feel like they need, they're not going to start putting themselves at risk to mess with those enforcement mechanisms. Um, it's when people feel like they're not getting what they need that they start to get restless. Now, from a philosophical perspective, uh, does it matter that the contract is not um, is not a real one? I think you'd have a lot of people say yes. You know, in particular, philosophers of a more libertarian bent, right? When you look at, um, uh, you know, it, from Hayek to Rand, um, people in the 20th century saying hey, look, there seems to be something wrong with the fact that someone is born into a state with debt and obligation to others, right? That I've, you know, I've behaved, I've uh, worked hard, I've created value, I've built wealth, and now I owe everyone else something uh, because they said so. From a purely individualist perspective... Um, it is somewhat problematic because you're going to have philosophers that say, look, you you know, this person that you're demanding a 60% tax from or this person that you're putting all these rules on um, because of their position didn't consent to this contract. There's no way they could have consented to this contract. What this is is a form of tyranny by majority where you have a majority that wants something out of this person. They have, you know, they've made paid some lip service to a contract about how that person owes all of them stuff but this contract's not legitimate and therefore this person is being wrongfully um put upon and and you know you have from the say the randis perspective you know it's theft um of their stuff to give to other people that happen to want it and happen to vote for it um from so from a philosophical philosophical perspective the inconsistency leaves room for objections certainly um and there is you know there if you're talking about trying to create a purely just system um you're going to run into problems with a uh, with a social contract model because it it doesn't quite work but from a practical perspective i think it reflects this sense that people are getting if people are getting what they feel like they need and they feel like they deserve um, they're generally going to behave, and this tends to work most of the time. So from a practical perspective, uh, generally, I think the social contract is a decent model um, of representing reality as opposed to a, 
uh, a, a true wellspring of justice. Um, and the reason it represents reality fairly well is that as long as people feel like they are getting what they need and what they deserve, they're generally going to behave and buy into the system. And so for the state, that is, you know, if it is trying to hang on to its legitimacy, it has to have its finger on the pulse of what most people or the vast majority of people think that they and others deserve uh, because people have a sense of justice about other people getting things that they're not necessarily getting. Think, you know, for example, Medicaid, right? Like I don't get Medicaid, but there are people who think other people deserve Medicaid and the state loses legitimacy if they're not getting it. Um, so it's a lot, you know, and so the, the state has to have its finger on that pulse. And if it stops providing the things that the population happens to believe are it's just due um, then it's going to lose legitimacy. And that's that's where you start to see the sense of the social construct or, or contract or the model that is the social contract contract coming into play as a very important force in legitimacy in a government. Now we start to get into the more exciting part of this when the state actually loses legitimacy. Ben, can you describe maybe some of the ways that states lose legitimacy and what it actually looks like when they do? Well, the biggest thing that happens with any loss of legitimacy is, um, well, people start ignoring the state or trying to figure out how to circumvent it to a certain extent. But uh, one of the things that, one of the ways to describe that behavior is... Um, a concept of balancing and this comes i think originally from the international relations perspective but i think it applies to internal uh internal political matters as well that um you feel threatened by someone who's breaking the rules in some way and so you start forming alliances against that person uh, in the international perspective say you have a country country in 1939 that invades poland uh and everyone else says no you can't do that you've crossed a line You've crossed too many lines at this point, and we're all going to get together, form a big alliance, and stop you. Uh, from an internal perspective, say you have a political actor who violates the Constitution and keeps violating the Constitution and seems like they're going to continue violating the Constitution or whatever uh, legitimate set of institutions you want to talk about, uh, and then everyone else starts to look at it and say, well, this is going to start violating my interests. I'm going to start being threatened by this. And then they start forming uh, political groups to oppose, political organizations to oppose that bad actor. Um, what can happen is, of, of course, you know, the, the most sort of obvious way that you can think about that happening is in, in terms of an outright civil war or a political movement. But there are a lot of shades there between different ways that this can happen. Um, one thing is people can just, like I said a little bit, people can just start trying to circumvent the state, state and ignoring the state and trying to do their own thing without the state. Uh, and that can lead to, at the very least, legal deadlock or, or just, you know, opposing the state. You can create legal deadlock either within political institutions or, you know, people can just say the state isn't legitimate. I'm going to try and find ways to avoid my taxes and the institutions just start falling apart because of things like that. But then, um, you know, and you can start talking about setting up alternative governing structures that, 
you stop paying your taxes to government A and start paying your taxes to government B. And a lot of times guerrilla warfare campaigns involve this aspect of things. And if that goes far enough, even if the guerrilla army doesn't win any victories, the state A will collapse. Um, but, um, you know, you can also start seeing things where states aren't monolithic, governments aren't monolithic, and they don't base their power on the entire population of the nation all at once, because the, the nation itself is always going to be subdivided into different interest groups, different geographical sections, and things can break down um, along a couple different lines. Um, you can have different sections of one population, different like classes or identity groups, who start lining up on different sides of an issue, and they start opposing each other. And this can turn into um, low-scale, non-organized violence that can then turn into real violence, and then you get a real civil war in the way we sort of see it around the world. Um, you can also get like regional issues, where one region of the, the state feels like they're not being taken care of, and then you can get secession movements, uh, or ethno-sectarian succession issues, things like that. Um, you can think of the American Civil War in, in that regard, uh, or, you know, uh, any of the, uh, any of the independence movements of the 20th century, uh, post-colonial things, or, or people secede from the colonial regime, whatever. And then ultimately, in this, this version of things, uh, a new government is maybe set up that more is in line with legitimacy. The other thing that can happen is that if, outside actors are looking at what's going on and they don't like what's happening, they can start messing around. Um, and I think, Eric, you might have something to say about this, or I can keep talking. <laughs> sure. I mean, we can talk about... What's interesting is we is if we look far back enough in history, we can talk about um, ways that... or reasons that outside actors will start messing around in a state for all kinds of reasons. I mean, some of it is, I mean, if you think of a theocratic state, a state may start mucking around another state because they, you know, their theocracy worships the wrong God. And if, I mean, if you think about it from a religious perspective, it's, it's a bit sympathetic because the God is the wellspring of all that is good. And of course you should help liberate these people from this horrible backwards religion. Um, and there's others in which, you know, and, and, um, during the Cold War, you had something similar where, you know, to the West, communism was a fundamentally illegitimate government. Um, and so if you started to see communism bubbling up somewhere, um, it wasn't it wasn't just the threat to the West, but it was the sense that it's wrong for communism to, you know, pop up in Vietnam. And so we're going to stop it from popping up in Vietnam. Um, and so there are there are many different reasons and we've looked at some of the sources of legitimacy before, um, at least external legitimacy, that a state would decide that it's it's time to mess around in another state. But when a state decides, like a state, in, in the Westphalian system, a state does not decide to mess around in the internal affairs of another state until it believes it has lost a sense of legitimacy. Or at least if you've got, from a more sinister perspective until it can at least sell the idea that the state has lost legitimacy right um and so if we think of you know if we think of the west like the idea of the united states intervening in france is absurd 
Um, it's just crazy. Whereas the idea of the United States intervening in Syria is not absurd. And so what's the difference? Well, the difference is that Americans believe France is a legitimate state that represents its people, that has control over its borders, that can enforce justice, that can enforce the rule of law. And so, of course, we wouldn't send troops in there. That's just silly. Um, whereas if we look at Syria, you know, why did we get involved? Um, and, and this isn't a defense of it. You know, I'm not going to talk about whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, but what was the idea behind the Obama administration getting involved? Well, you know, the Assad regime had sort of broken the um, the social contract. It was like corrupt and evil and torturing people. Um, it uh, oppressed a majority um, with a with a kind of ethnic minority rule that was favor or sorry a religious minority rule that was favorable to a certain religious group. Um, and so what had happened was the people of the United States and the government of the United States and many countries in the West, because you had to have enough of them consenting or else there would be trouble, um, saw that the, the state of Syria had lost its legitimacy to be a state and that it was now okay and perfectly acceptable for um, other powers to intervene to create a more legitimate state. And so that's where in the modern age, we start to see efforts for regime change. Um, similarly, Russia's intervention in Georgia um, was not for a total regime change, but it was to, you know, quote unquote, liberate the ethnically Russian people of South Ossetia from oppression by the, um, the government of Georgia. And Russia saw in Russia's eyes, the government of Georgia was not a legitimate ruler of the South Ossetian people, um, either because it wasn't taking their interests into mind or just because they believed that the South Ossetians had a right to self-rule by other South Ossetians. And they defined that ethnic group, and it was somewhat convenient that it happened to be a Russian-friendly people. Um, and so when we... In the modern age, when we see Western states intervening in other states to change who rules whom and how, this is what we're, what we're experiencing is these Western states and enough people inside them to consent. Um, what we're seeing is these Western states deciding that the rule of the state is not legitimate and it is sufficiently bad that it is worth sending resources and people to die um, in order to change it. The thing that probably most bolsters this position is when you have a significant uprising within that country that is looking for help. Um, so in the case of Syria and Libya, for example, you had these significant uprisings against governments that a large portion of people decided were illegitimate. And the point in which we decided to intervene was when these guys had gotten some momentum, when it was clear that the legitimacy of the state had already been broken um, and that we intervened not because we unilaterally decided that the governments were or that the states were illegitimate, but that a, a large enough group of people had done so. And we decided what they needed was military support in order to overthrow the illegitimate state and create a legitimate one. Now, that can open up a whole can of worms about why the United States or the West feels like it's its job to, um, 
to intervene. And some of the answer may be that some of the source of legitimacy for Western democracies is this sense that we're not just looking out for ourselves. Our legitimacy comes from this sense that we are devoted to human rights that are universal and not just restricted to our own borders. Um, and therefore, we are willing to exert resources in order to enforce those human rights for others when it gets bad enough. And it may very well be the case that were Western nations like the United States, Britain, Germany, Italy, France, whatever, were they not willing to enforce the human rights that they declare in states outside of their own borders, they may begin to le lose legitimacy. So it may actually be this, this sense of, um, in the modern world, Western democracies intervening in other states that are illegitimate. Um, this action may actually be a very important part of uh, their own efforts to reinforce their legitimacy at home. I, I, like I think that there's been relatively few cases where legitimacy has has broken down. Like I, I know there's been there's been a couple of examples of of Nazi Germany uh, thrown around. Um, I would I would be hesitant to say that the especially the internal legitimacy of of Nazi Germany and the Third Reich had 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 disappeared. Um, you know I. I I doubt, you know, obviously without going into too much historical um, analysis, I, I doubt very much that um, the Third Reich regime would have been able to put together the fighting force that it did after 1939 if its legitimacy had had uh, been been eroded. Now, I think the argument that its legitimacy as a state, as part of the community of states, had uh, had gone is is a good one like that's that 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 is good and i think that 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 happens quite frequently you know so uh syria's standing in the in the in the community of nations which is a terrible term is, is bullshit right now as is zimbabwe i would say russia to a certain extent um you know a huge amount of states that you know that are just pariahs obviously the the top of that list is always north korea which people do not consider as a legitimate or, or the other states do not consider as a legitimate state the question arises though is is korea a legitimate state from the point of view of the people that it rules because that's really the point that needs to be addressed it's not if if a state's legitimacy can be decided by an external power that opens up a massive other can of worms that could eventually you know lead to undermining the very concept of the Westphalian state, given that the West, the concept of the Westphalian state is also based on the on the notion of sovereignty and the ability to self-identify as as a state or a nation state or whatever you want to you want to identify it. Now, I think if you made an argument that the North Korean people see their state as legitimate, I I personally would find that very suspect, given the data that we do have coming out of there. I, I wouldn't imagine that's the case. But, you know, when you do have a state failing, and, and that's that's what really happens, when the legitimacy breaks down to the point where it, the system has broken, no government can take the power anymore because the state, the, the state's legitimacy and that power has broken down to such an extent that there is no legitimate way to hold power. That's a terribly messy situation. Um, and... 
I, you know, I remember we used to we, we used to refer to Lebanon as the arch failed state um, many years ago. Um, obviously, now now I think that the main example is Somalia, which is you know probably the longest running failed state in in modern history, and it's you know it's terribly messy with the government and essentially the state only controlling a very small portion of Mogadishu. Um, and all the rest being divided, you know, the power of the state being divided up between warlords and, and different actors within that state. But what's, what I find fascinating is that within the original kind of section of Somalia, you have a functioning legitimate state uh, called Somaliland, which is, you know, meets all the very uh, academic aspects of what a state is, but has no feet uh, you know no ground to stand on because the rest of the world refuses to recognize it as a state and i think that that really brings us to a, a discussion of the the reasoning that other states use when they interact or decide to or not decide to interact with others with other states and make calls on their legitimacy so like i think the points that eric and ben rose about um, you know Syria, and you know why is it that America has has gotten involved there? And I I absolutely agree that the idea that they um, America and the West to a certain extent sees itself as the bastion of human rights, and it is its role to spread those rights in the rest of the world. On the other hand, however, if that was the case, you know why hasn't uh, America gotten involved in Zimbabwe? where there is not an armed uprising against the regime of Robert Mugabe, um, mainly due to the fact that the people there are not actually physically capable of doing that. They're you know, highly uneducated, there's a famine situation, there's very low ability to mobilize forces, you know, there's no training, all the armed forces are either retired or being paid heavily by the regime. So, you know, you're in a situation where human rights are being trampled, where I think that if, that you know, when we have done polls in Zimbabwe and we have spoken to them like, you know, do you think the state's legitimate? There's a, a very high percentage of them who view the state as illegitimate and the rule of Robert Mugabe as such as well. So, you know, why haven't the West gotten involved? They're in to a certain extent, I think it's because they have no political interests in the region. Um, there's no reason to get involved in Zimbabwe um, that would benefit anybody. Or so it's, I, you know, I, I, I can't see them making the decision to say like, well, we're not going to get involved there. It just never really gets discussed. There are there are political agendas happening within the, and even that term just sounds terrible to me because it makes me sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist. But um, you know, there, there's a there are political agendas going on in the in the in this case with Syria. There's a there's an ongoing conflict of di- of a diplomatic nature between Russia and America over who's going to control the outcome of this of this war. There's also the fact that America has been involved in that region for so many years that a large amount of the political things that are going on in that region are, you know, a result of American policy in the first place. So there's a sense of responsibility. Um, but yeah, so I think I think that there's you know it's difficult to explain everything or all political action from the point of view of is this a, a state legitimacy issue or is it not? Um, there are other factors involved as well, and at the end of the day, the the real thing that matters from my point of view is the fact of this internal idea of legitimacy. This, and when that breaks down, it's a v- incredibly messy situation, 
and I think it 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 ends up being sometimes unsolvable. So I would like there was an interesting example that was brought up earlier was at the American Civil War. Was the American Civil War a conflict of what of state legitimacy? Um, it was definitely a conflict about governance rules and regulations. There were economic issues, there were issues of slavery, there were a whole bunch of things. But was the American state, as it's defined in the Constitution, ever really brought into question? Now, maybe you guys probably know more about this than I do, being that you have probably studied more of the history. But from what I understand, that the, the question of the state itself was not necessarily what was up for debate. The debate was... You know, how do we govern and how do we interpret that state legitimacy? But the state itself, we, we agree with everything. So, you know, there, there's an interesting, very thin dividing line between when we talk about the delegitimization of the state and the delegitimization of governance. Yeah, you bring up two points there, Pete. The first part is a place like Somaliland or Zimbabwe or maybe Kurdistan to a certain degree, I don't know the specifics of that, but let's take Zimbabwe. Is can you is this a statement that has any validity to it that a place like Zimbabwe might not have legitimacy in a Westphalian sense, but in a non-Westphalian sense that it's completely legitimate? If anything, I would say that it's the opposite, that from a Westphalian sense, Zimbabwe does have legitimacy. It's, uh, you know, given that the Westphalian system is heavily focused on international norms and values, um, you know, from a legalistic point of view, it, it, it meets all the criteria. It has a set, the government is very strong, it has control over a monopoly of coercive force, um, it controls a stable population, it has a very defined territory, it has a seat at the UN, it's internationally recognized, it's got all the stuff, it's, it has all the trimmings that it needs, you know, it's, it's you've got a national sports team, all the stuff that it, that it absolutely needs, and the government controls its power absolutely. So from from that, I would say, yeah, it's a it's a legitimate Westphalian state. Um, but is it a legitimate state in that it represents and is it ruled by the people, or does it represent their interests? Does it do the people in it agree to be ruled? No, then I would say it's not a legitimate state. Yeah, and I think Kurdistan is a good counterexample where obviously in a Westphalian sense, it's it's not a legitimate state because it doesn't have recognized borders. Is it a state? Uh, parts of it, absolutely, right? If we think of northern Iraq, um, you know, you have a system that is, you know, partially, it's, it's partially subsumed into Iraq. But at this point, um, you know, post-ISIS, Iraq largely lost ability to project any power or support into um, into Iraqi Kurdistan. Obviously, in the Syrian civil war, the Syrian army completely lost control to project power and support into Syrian Kurdistan. And a lot of the gains made against ISIS were by the Kurdish army. And in this time period, you know, Kurdistan has strengthened its own... Um, its own governance structures, it's running its own courts, you know, it has, it largely operates by its own laws at this point, runs its own schools, they teach Kurdish. I mean, we're looking at, I mean, uh, clearly Kurdistan sees itself as a nation. Is it operating like a state? Absolutely. Is it going to gain legitimacy in the Westphalian sense that we give it a seat at the United Nations and there's a line and, you know, between Kurdistan and Iraq and Syria and, 
and people look at that and say, Iraq, you can't cross into there. You know, that'd be bad, bad, bad. Um, is that going to happen? Well, it might. You know, it, in a in a weird way, we live in politically very exciting times that, um, you know, from a de facto sense, I mean, after the Syrian civil war and the Iraq, the Iraqi war against ISIS is over, I just, you know, can you, can you even make the case that, could you make the case that Iraq could take over Kurdistan if it wanted and Kurdistan didn't want to be taken over? I think the answer is no. And in Syria, it's obviously no. And therefore, to some extent, what you start to see is more of these Westphalian style markers of legitimacy building up for Kurdistan. Um, and all, uh, what they would be waiting for at that point is the anointment of you know, the United States, the West, and hopefully for them, the United Nations to be able to say, you know, and, and also like a treaty with Iraq, a treaty with Syria that would identify the borders, you know, the paperwork part, they'd be waiting for the paperwork part to get that source of legitimacy. But I think internally they have it. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about repeatedly is that this isn't, um, isn't a binary thing. It's not on or off. Um, there's a, a whole buildup of things you need to be legitimate from an international sense and from an internal sense. And I, I, you know, as Eric said, I think that Kurdistan has definitely built up a fair measure of legitimacy from an internal sense, which is translating itself to, um, let's say, sympathy on an international level, given that we're a bunch of people who have never, you know... <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but I've never been even close to Kurdistan. <laughs> uh, but we are all fairly sympathetic to their existence as a country, um, despite the geopolitical mess that it would probably cause. Um, I think from, you know, from a Westphalian sense, they're getting close. Uh, but of course, it's not, it's not an on or off thing. And, you know, by contrast to Somalia, like they crossed that line in the whatever, the, the 50s or the 60s, whenever they got independence. And so the paperwork is on the books, but there's no real, you know... I, I mean, a great example. One of the big problems in Somalia that's undermining their ability to coalesce is that uh, international, mostly European, uh, interests just sort of go there and fish and then dump toxic chemicals into the water and no one's going to stop them. <laughs> and um, that's a big thing that's behind the, the whole piracy issue uh, and from a, a certain standpoint that's just because their government lacks legitimacy uh, from an international standpoint and from an internal standpoint I, I'm so grateful that you brought up the multiple layers there of the how when jumping from Zimbabwe to Kurdistan that you mentioned the necessity of internal legitimacy because I, we kind of t touched and we tried to touch on a bit earlier about how you can have legitimacy of a regime or, but not necessarily of the party and vice versa um, where when you've got a state like Zimbabwe that ticks all the boxes it doesn't necessarily have regime legitimacy that the people that Zimbabweans don't believe in PF as a party and they don't believe it in it as a, a, a dominant party and they don't believe Necessarily, well, I think many people are losing hope in democracy as the ability to replace the ZANU-PF as the dominant party. Um, so, on multiple layers, Zimbabwe is missing a lot of legitimacy, uh, which is you know which is causing problems. Um, and 
and somehow not yet causing international problems. Uh, luckily for the Zone PF, and this is unfortunate, but luckily for the Zone PF, there aren't international interests in Zimbabwe. So nobody would be better off from an intervention there uh, other than Zimbabweans themselves, and that's just not a good enough reason. So on to the example of um, of Kurdistan. I'm so happy to just sit in silence and listen to that example. I, I would say that Zimbabwe checks all the technical boxes for being a internationally legitimate state, but I think you know their uh, esteem, their legitimacy esteem, if you will, uh, in the international community is pretty low. And if they started really, you know, I think there's just a perception that they're just not bad enough. If they started, you know, building mountains of skulls and macheteing, you know, an ethnic minority or something like that to a really extreme degree, like we saw in Rwanda, you know. No one cared about Rwanda. There's no interests in Rwanda, but we were all sort of going, well, I guess we need to intervene, then we'll send troops if we have to. But, you know, we've built up this conception, you know, post-World War II, the, um, that if human rights violations are bad enough... You cross, you check a box, and then the international community, no matter how much they don't want to, <laughs> sort of goes, well, I guess. Yeah, but... I guess. That's, it's, an interesting, it's, it's an interesting line, that human rights line, because for, for, for some states, like North Korea or China, for example, they don't, you know, they don't believe that those human rights are universal. So they would stand up um, to... Uh, to to some propensity to defend the uh, the legitimacy of another state on human rights grounds, or the legitimacy of civilians or citizens of another state on human rights grounds, saying that uh, you know the citizens of Rwanda have human rights and shouldn't be macheted and shouldn't have their skulls piled up, and therefore we're going to defend them against the state, or we're going to defend them against warring factions, or we're going to intervene in South Sudan for the same reason. Um, but if, 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 if the state of South Sudan did not believe that those human rights were applicable within its own borders, it didn't, were incommensurate with its own ideals as, as, a civili- as a, an exclusive population and as a self-determined population, then, then they would stand up and they would resist those forces of universality. Um, so it's a tricky one, and it plays into something that perhaps we haven't talked about enough, and that is, well, it doesn't lead directly to legitimacy, but it certainly plays a strong role in international legitimacy or international recognition, and that is the strength of self-determination and how willing the people are to determine their own outcomes, certainly their own political outcomes. Um, perhaps we could have brought it in when we were talking about national identity and whether or not uh, people see a, a, a defined group or a group that is distinguished enough from other groups in the world so as to set up a state around that nation. Uh, and if there is such a, a view and if there is the capacity to establish that state, then more often than that, they earn it. It's more when it comes to um, establishing that state by means of secession that it isn't as popular. But uh, you know, in the mid-20th century, when 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 previously ungoverned state, uh, states, more previous colonies, were able to set up the state for the first time, then as long as they had a, a unified vision and not even an, an, identify, an identifiable common culture, but just a unified vision of how they would wish to run their country based on the West, 
the principles of a Westphalian state, they were normally granted that by the international community, um, you know, with, with many notable exceptions. Uh, but that's something perhaps that could be brought into the loss of legitimacy, but more because we don't see states being unrecognized. Uh, we see states being, we see that first timers being, being unrecognized, such as Western Sahara, um, but at no point, or actually Western Sahara is a really funny example because at some point they were recognized in the African Union, but then because of political pressure from Morocco, they were sort of de-recognized. Um, however, that was a bit of a funny process and I've struggled to gain m much detail on it. But it's it's very seldom that a, a state that has asserted its, its self-determination in the international system as a legitimate state often has that legitimacy or that recognition rescinded by the international community. Well, part of the issue there is that, you know, the puzzle piece nature of the international system means that, you know, even if, okay, even if Somalia is a basket case of a state, um, we're pretty uh, hesitant as an international community to go ahead and say that, well, Somalia no longer exists, and that's terra nullis now, uh, because then every all the neighbors maybe try and gobble it up, Maybe, you know, that then you end up with all the component parts splitting up and fighting this massive civil war, which, of course, there's a civil war going on anyway. But um, that's sort of the, um, the headache that the Westphalian system has created for itself is that we can't unrecognize states. There's no way to go back to Terra Nullis now, because even if... Even if, okay, let's say Zimbabwe collapses and someone sets up a new Scandinavian utopian uh, wonder state in its place, it's not that Zimbabwe went away, it's someone just changed the government. <laughs> it's still Zimbabwe, because it still has those same borders. It's still ruling over the same people. And, and that's, that. yeah, so that's sort of the issue. We can't, we can't unrecognize things, we can split things. Um, and there's the annexation process, which we're very, very unhappy about these days. But, um, you know, self-determination is sort of by the nature of the Westphalian system, it's either extraordinarily messy or it's a process of splitting something off from something larger. Uh, and that's why uh, the situation in Kurdistan, where there's groups from like four or five different countries that want to create their state, well, that becomes really, really tough within the Westphalian system. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there isn't another precedent that has not been set, um, which is the, I don't know what you would call it, a subsummation of states, where a body of people would rescind or or take back or um, sort of opt out of their self-determination. I've only, it's only been hinted at with the state of reunion um, that I can think about now, where uh, there was a populist movement to, to secede from France uh, and join the African Union as an independent state uh, claiming a right to self-determination but the, the benefits of not having to elect a popular government and to just be a protectorate and sort of keep life going as usual was overwhelming and over two-thirds majority voted to stay with France um, and so they kind of had to walk back a, a process that had already been initialized to become an independent state and so they kind of relinquished their right to self-determination and I thought, well, if, imagine if there had already been a separate state. Um, take, for example, Mauritius, uh, which, which is you know, a French-speaking former colony. And if they decide, right, we don't want to be Mauritius anymore. Uh, we just want to be sort of a province of France. We're going to go back 
to being uh, a protectorate or, or you know, sort of a, ho a holiday island. Um, in that way, you could, you know, you could sort of unrecognize Mauritius, but, uh, but you know, that hasn't, I can't think of a, an example where that's happened before. Well, I think the big example that we see ongoing is the EU. Despite its current problems, if things kept going the way they had been going for the last 40 or 50 years, if the EU kept getting closer and closer and more and more legitimacy and executive power was ceded to the EU as a whole, eventually you'd have a situation where you had a federal state of Europe, essentially, and Europe would become more like the US, and it wouldn't become an international entity anymore, it would become just one state of Europe, for example. And then the, the self-determination of all the individual sovereign states that make up Europe would eventually go away. With federated a federated state like that, where there's an idea that inside of the bigger state, there's other entities, I think about in the European Union, where it's probably... It, their states are still more concentrated where when, um, what was it, the northern part of Spain wanted to break off and form its own state but still be within the European Union or um, at one point where Scotland wanted to form their own state but still want to be in part of the European Union. Another example might be in the United States where it's almost unthinkable that maybe, I don't know, half of Wyoming wants to go become its own state or with California wanting to exit Texas inside of a state. Why is it so absurd that to think about uh, provinces inside of the state to break off? Does that have any relation to what we've well, been talking about today? Well, yeah, that's basically what we have been talking about within the Westphalian state system. The, the, political entity that has character is the national government. So if you're talking about the United States, that would be the United States government. Um, the individual component parts of the United States, that's nice, that's good for the United States, but that's part of the United States government's own governing system, and it sort of doesn't matter to the rest of the international community. They, you know, Texas can't really send an official embassy to, you know, the United Nations. Um, you have to go through it when you want to secede, when you want to exercise that right of self-determination as a, as a community, you have to go through the process of seceding, setting up your own state system, and then getting recognized as such by the international community. And then you could have a separate state of Texas or whatever uh, that would be part of that. Uh, within that structure, um, the, the thing with uh, the Catalonian region or Scotland, is that once you do that, there's these uh, su super state or regional political entities, these um, external above state systems like the UN um, that exist regardless of what's going on, <laughs> sort of. Um, so there's a bunch of these in around the world. Uh, the UN is the, the prime example of an international governing body, but there's also regional governing bodies like the EU, like the African Union. Um, there's there's equivalents in, in other regions. And so they sort of have a mandate to be a collective coordinating diplomatic body for all the states within their region. Um, and so once you've, be once you've gained character 
as part of the international community, then you can send a representative to those regional governing bodies. So in the case of uh, Catalonia or Scotland, once you've seceded from uh, Spain or Great Britain, then you can send a representative to be part of the European Parliament. And it would be, you know, part of the normal process because you'd taken your place, you'd become a legitimate state. Uh, it'd be different, you know, it, it would be a different process if like half of Wyoming seceded from the other first half of Wyoming and became a state in the United States, because that would just be an internal process. Let's start with Brock. What do you think your final takeaway is from from this? And then maybe you can share a little bit how we can learn more about uh, your and Peter's podcast. After listening to the discussion that's taking place today, it's, uh, it's interesting and fun uh, and exciting to be reminded how important these intangible abstract concepts of political theory can be for everyday life, um, especially considering the current events in the world and how populations and people all over the, the globe are struggling with the identification of a, a legitimate state. Uh, and the support of the of legitimate states or the non-support of them, um, so we can see that uh, <laughs> that this battle with a nondescript item or such a thing as legitimacy is taking place right in front of us, and it's a, it's uh, it's really it's really cool to to learn from other people and to see uh, what they the things they notice the trends that they bring up and uh, obviously to learn from the examples that they have experience with. I've never learned that much about Kurdistan before. So that's been a, a great contribution. Um, we uh, we would have loved to take this to, this chat to the the realm of say how would um, how could Merkwood become its own sovereign province within the realm of Middle Earth? And uh, that's normally what we do at the Lands of Leviathan is try to make uh, try to illuminate some of these mysteries and some of the depth of behind these concepts with by referring to popular culture. So we've done a, a, an episode on power and authority. Um, in reference to Game of Thrones and we, in that we discuss legitimacy quite extensively and uh, try to use popular consent as the most uh, as the most uh, reliable form of uh, attributing legitimacy to a, a regime um, and we, you know, we've done a few other things as well that, are, that reference lands and people and characters outside of our own world so and that way we try to make it fun and try to bring a few smiles and jokes to it. But um, ultimately we still talk about these issues and just try to make them more understandable to people who haven't studied political science and international relations. Um, this has been very fun, guys. Thanks a lot. If we want to learn more about our, your show, where can we go? Well, Steve, you know about that because you've helped uh, include us in the Agora Podcast Network. So um, on the Agora Podcast website, you can find us there. We've got our own website as well, landsofleviathan.com. Uh, yeah, you can find all of our episodes and, and, and articles up on Lands of Leviathan. Um, of course, we're available on all the usual media streams, such as Facebook and Twitter, and of course, the Acast podcast app, which is how most people find get our episodes to listen to. Um, and if you can think of any others that I've missed, please help them out, Steve. <laughs> yes, we will. Well, thank you very much for coming, Pete. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much. Uh, this has been awesome. Eric, what what are your final takeaways, and how can we learn about your great show? Great question. <clears throat> What's interesting is we started the show by talking about Trump and Brexit, 
and we we had a long journey down a path of understanding legitimacy of the state um, and we ended up talking about you know states like Somalia and Zimbabwe um, and and proto states like Kurdistan and it felt a little scary for a moment but as I was doing some listening I thought about um, are states like the United States Britain or other Western states at risk of losing their legitimacy I think in the case of the United States the only serious example that I could think of was the one Ben brought up which is about how expectations about how we elect our president have changed and Donald Trump won the election after losing a you know, pretty handily in the popular vote. And that brings into, you know, that brings some legitimacy problems of the system into question. Um, but I think other than that, do I think that the United States is at risk of losing statewide legitimacy? I think no. I think Britain is not either. Um, except for the case that uh, Scotland might think about seceding because Britain has left the European Union. Um, but I also don't think that secession from kind of conglomerate states into smaller nations is always a bad thing, right? We saw Czech Republic and Slovakia break up and it was fine. Um, so am I particularly worried about the legitimacy of Western states in the future? Not really. Um, I think the test that the United States would be going through is if, for example, you know, it turns out that Trump is, you know, far too tied into Russian interests uh, to be able to represent the United States correctly. The question will be whether the system can get rid of him. Um, and if not, we may have a legitimacy problem because, you know, we the, the system's no longer able to look out for the interests of the people. Uh, but if it can if it can handle that problem should it arise, do I think the United States is at risk of losing serious legitimacy? No. Um, and so what it was helpful for me to go through this whole process to start thinking about what does it mean for the place I happen to live um, and, to, and to put it in context of, you know, what does the United States need to do to maintain legitimacy and be able to give itself, you know, another chance, another day at... Um, you know, at, at like becoming politically unified and kind of happy again. So uh, I've had a lot of fun. This has been really useful. Um, if you guys as listeners want to hear more about these kinds of questions, particularly as they refer to uh, the issues of the modern day, uh, you can find us at reconsidermedia.com. Um, our Twitter and Facebook handles are at reconsiderpod, P-O-D. Um, we're also on Agora, of course. Uh, you can find us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. And coming up for us is actually uh, the state we're going to be talking about for the next month or so is Russia. Um, and we're going to be doing a series on reconsidering Russia. And we'll actually be talking about some of its sources of and risks to legitimacy um, with some great guests, uh, other podcasters and academics and the like. So hope to see you there. And then lastly, Ben, can you share some of your final thoughts and where we can learn more about your show. Yeah. So I think I'm actually going to follow on, on some of what, uh, what Eric was talking about, uh, there. I think one of the things we've brought up a couple times in, in this show, that's really important is how there's a continuum of legitimacy. It's not binary. Uh, and that legitimacy can fall away a little bit, but not be entirely gone. 
And I think that in terms of what we're seeing right now uh, in in a lot of developed countries is that we're coming up against sort of the uh, a calcification of our governmental institutions and the governmental institutions are are losing legitimacy. But that doesn't mean that the entire state is going to fall apart because one of the strengths of these these Western liberal democracies is that um, there's a, a wide amount of agreement about this, the legitimacy of the state as a whole. And I think that, uh, like like Eric said, we're going to see that uh, we work through this and take the warning of the canaries in the coal mines and uh, adjust our governmental institutions such that they can move off into the future having more political legitimacy. And that's why conversations like this are so important. And uh, I I've really enjoyed it as well. I'm glad everybody could join us. Uh, a little view behind the curtain, I put this together, even though I'm not hosting it, and I'm just really glad it went so well, and really glad that all you guys uh, joined us for this, and, and thank you very much for making this successful. Um, and uh, you can find my podcast, which is Wittenberg to Westphalia, uh, at Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com, and also on iTunes, and Facebook, and Twitter, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, the the tie-in with, with my podcast is that I'm really looking at how all this stuff happened in the first place. I'm going back, well, I'm the main focus of my show is going to be the early modern period, but I'm actually going back to the very beginning of the Middle Ages and looking at how the Westphalian state system developed out of the, the, the chaos from the Middle Ages of just like uh, these, these feudal entities that were really just alliances of large families. So uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, check me out. And, uh, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more Agora Podcast Network original content, you can go to www.agorapodcastnetwork.com. If you have questions or comments about this show, we'd really love to hear your questions or comments, and those might be things that we address in a future episode of The State. You can email us at agorapodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, um, LinkedIn. There's all sorts of social medias out there. You can also leave a voicemail message uh, if you go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. I am very proud to have been able to participate and host this episode, and I hope to speak with you soon. 